0: Building a brand has always intrigued me as a founder, especially because a brand can also function as a moat when there are many competitors in the market. I'm your host Rahul and you are listening to The Business Project. On today's episode, we have Vishal Nicholas. He has over 16 years of experience in the advertising space. He currently serves as the executive vice president and head of brand strategy at Dentsu Creative. During this period, she's worked with many brands, including the launch of IKEA in Bangalore. On this episode, we also cover how to set the right context with agencies for brand building, campaign distribution, and so much more. Listen in. So tell me about your backstory. How did you get introduced to advertising? There's a you kind know, of a funny story. Thanks to one of my friend's
1: dad's back in school. He used to be in marketing and he used to deal with a few agencies back then he used to be in Hindustan Lever. One fine day I asked him, uncle, what do you need to study or specialize in if one were to get into advertising? And his answer bowled me over. He said nothing. So, (laughs) uh, but what he really meant was you don't need any particular subject to specialize in. I mean, you don't need to do physics or maths or English or statistics or something else. You need a little bit of everything. And and that really got me interested in advertising to begin with. And um, how I got my first break was uh, partly through serendipity, partly through sheer persistence. I used to be in insurance as an insurance claims manager. And uh, one fine day, I saw this you know job opportunity at McCann Erickson. I just mailed them, which I've been I had been chasing many agencies for a few months, but to no avail. I mailed them, got a call out of the blue. Uh, somehow convince them that, you know, I'm the right fit. And yeah, I think after that, there was no looking back. And from there, you went on to Denso after that. So I started at McCann, then I went to
0: Lintas uh, and then Denso. So I'd like to talk a little more about brand building in general now. Usually when founders start companies, they do it because they identify a gap in the market. Now, when I started my brand, my priority was to get the product to the market And brand building was not really on my mind most of the time. So during this journey, when do you suggest that a founder ideally focus on building a brand?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, you mentioned yourself that it wasn't on the top of your mind. And I completely understand that. I think the first thing that is on a founder's mind, particularly in the early stages, is product market fit, right? Maybe brand building may not be priority number one at that stage. And that's okay. But I would still recommend to have a plan at the back of your mind, as far as branding is concerned, right from day one. So that you know that, hey, at day 30, I may not be focusing on building the brand in a a traditional sense, as we say. But I'm still doing tactical stuff that doesn't take me too far away from where I ultimately want to build the brand on. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, you know, identifying a gap. Uh, and launching a product or a service. And communicating that is equally part of brand building. Let's take ride-hailing. We all know Ola's and Uber's. their model is currently kind of broken. What they set out to, you know, solve, they've again sort of broken it. Mm-hmm. Now, suppose somebody comes in and says, hey, I'll guarantee you no cancellation. Now, that's a gap in the current market. That will help build their brand. Uh, because they are the first mover again. Now, again, if they have some sort of success, two or three competitors will come in. Then this company will need to say how I'm better than these other two or three competitors. So brand building is always relevant at any stage, whether it's tactical or whether it's long-term. Uh, I'd recommend that you always have that at the back of your mind. There may be few activities that you do which don't necessarily tick the traditional boxes of brand building, yeah. but it'll at least help you Uh, decide where not to go or what not to do
0: got it in the past when i reached out to agencies and told them that i want to build a brand the conversation was mostly about a logo a typography and a tone of voice what i want to ask you is is there something more to brand building than just these guidelines that agencies create
1: yeah i mean uh, of course there is more this is sort of just the basic building blocks Uh, you mentioned the logo typography the tone of voice I think one thing that we do uh, and I'd recommend all founders to ask for is something called a brand world, which is, you know, what is my brand and what is not my brand? Uh, And I particularly find that very useful for everybody involved, particularly the what is not my brand, Um, because then it clarifies to everyone. And both these two need to be two positives. You can't say "I I want my brand to be young and my brand is not old. That doesn't work. It's obvious that if you want your brand to be youthful, it can't be old, can't be fuddy-duddy. But suppose you say, my brand is not youthful. My brand is youthful, but it's not, you know, older millennial, for example. Then it's a difficult choice to make, Mm. right? But you're clarifying to members of your team, which is a writer choice of the two difficult options. Or if it's Nike, uh, Nike says, I'm slightly aggressive in my tonality. Then it's clear. They're likely a little provocative. Whereas if Nike says, I am not, for example, rebellious. Hmm. Now, both are good territories for any brand. But it's important to clarify, you know, which is who am I? Rebellious is also something many brands would like to have and many brands build themselves on but if Nike says hey I'm not rebellious but I am provocative then it clarifies to all members on the team where we should go what's the kind of tonality so that's one thing I find really useful in the mix which is defining the brand world in addition to some of these other things that you mentioned
0: right I think it's important for a brand to also know what exactly the gap is that they're solving for in the market Because at times when you reach out to an agency, they tell you that they'll help you with customer research. They will speak to so many people and find out exactly where the brand should position itself. How do you suggest that the brand navigate a conversation like this? Um, Mainly because is it better for a brand to understand this on their own or use the services of an agency to help them figure this out?
1: So in addition to, you know, the logo typography, even the brand world, what we usually do, and again, I recommend is to have a user persona built out or a pen portrait, a consumer pen portrait. Yeah. These things are called differently by different people, but essentially go out there, meet consumers. And if you're a, if you're a young startup, I would recommend to do that jointly both you and your, you know, agency partners or your communication partners Mm -hmm. do an in-depth consumer research. Then you don't have to meet thousands of people, even if you meet 20 people, but that 20 should be in-depth. And then you can come back and draw out a user persona or a pen portrait, which, you know, says, hey, this is my consumer. Rahul Mm -hmm. is is a 30-year-old millennial in Bangalore. He has a voracious appetite for risk. And... these are the YouTube channels that he subscribes to. Here's what he writes. Here's what he loves to wear. Here's what he loves to watch. Uh, and of course, in within your category or your product, what is the problem that he's facing? Mm. And then you put that on a chart or a slide, and that becomes your North Star, again, for everybody to go by. And keep revisiting that every, you know, 6 to 12 months. Um, because people also evolve. Categories also evolve. Uh, first of all, it helps understand what the gap is.
0: Then, of course, a common understanding of what the gap is. So that should help. Makes sense. So this is something that I actually learned the hard way. There was this one time where I was creating a video for a market launch campaign as part of a GTM plan. So basically, I decided to do a video and had about a 3 lakh budget. Now, the video itself costed about 2 lakh something to make. And I was under the impression that, okay, create the video, put it on Instagram and YouTube and do the marketing from there. Um, but then that's when I realized there's this is concept called media buying and media planning, where you spend a certain budget on making the video and then you spend the rest on distribution, which is called media buying to ensure that it reaches a certain number of people. But this is something that I didn't know back then. So when you ideate a strategy, how do you go about creating a market plan and also identify that, OK, this is the budget that I should allocate for distribution?
1: Yeah, I mean, distribution of content is far more expensive than the creation of it. And the thumb rule, it's a thumb rule, so take it for that, is probably, I would say, 1 is to 15. So 1 is to 15 when I say uh, creation is to distribution. So for every 1 rupee you spend on creation, 15 bucks gets spent on distribution for it to get distributed effectively. Having said that, of course, there could be plus minus here and there. So keep that in mind when you're sort of creating videos. Plan for having that 15x for distribution of that videos as well, or whatever you Mm. want to spend on Google, Facebook, Instagram. The other thing is coming back to the market plan. It all starts with, you know, the trickiest thing in, in business, which is to forecast demand. Mm. It's the trickiest thing you can you can sort of attempt. Uh, sometimes you overestimate, sometimes you underestimate, but you have to do some sort of estimation, right? Also, you have to take you have to look at your supply chain and stuff like that. Okay. Again, uh, there a common way to do it is to take a percentage of your revenue or estimated revenue, right? saying that you know my advertising and sales promotion expenses for this campaign or for a year will be. Again, the thumb rule there is 8 to 12% of your revenue. Now, typically, these are for large established, you know, non-VC funded companies. But for startups, particularly those who have funding, it all changes. I mean, you could have a advertising budget, which is 100% of your revenue or even more. So, all depends on your forecast. All depends on how much you need to sell in that quarter. Uh, and of course, how much budget you have.
0: Okay, so how do you choose between the different mediums? Because at times, I would intuitively put it on Instagram. But maybe if you were to think about it, LinkedIn or even radio is where I actually need to put it. So how do you go about making the choice in terms of choosing the right mediums?
1: So uh, remember, I spoke to you about the user persona, or the pen portrait. Yeah. So when you have your, you know, bullseye consumer, well-defined... You will tend to know what he or she tends to watch more frequently. That's number one. Number two, which are the platforms that he uses particularly to consume information in and around your category. Suppose he's into gymming or running, you'll know which platforms he consumes for information on that. So that will at least set you in the right direction. The second is, of course, things like, uh, you know, keyword searches. You know, sometimes I recommend, particularly in very early stages is 80% of your budget should be on Amazon and nothing else. There's no point, you know, putting 2020, 2020, 2020 and, you know, getting piddly returns. Mm. Take an outsized bet, but but a calculated bet. If your category is a category that people search for on Amazon more than Mm. on Instagram, Go for Amazon the whole hog or go for any other marketplace the whole hog. If if you see that your category has a lot of conversations on Instagram or on Facebook or even on Google, go the whole hog there. Mm. Uh, The worst plans are a little bit of money everywhere. Then that's what we call a spray and pray approach. There's no strategy then.
0: Right. So I know that you actually did work on Britannia's Bourbon campaign, where you repositioned the entire brand to a whole different audience altogether. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, Bourbon was was interesting. Bourbon was, at the time, a 55-year-old brand. Hmm. Obviously, it was the favorite of generations. And very interestingly, in its 55-year-old history, and this I'm talking around probably 2009-10, at the time in its history, they had not even advertised it once. Mm. now britannia as a biscuit company they also wanted to obviously chocolate flavors very popular with the young there was hide and seek that was doing well with youngsters mm. so britannia also wanted to you know use bourbon to get some preference with youngsters as a company and one of the things we did was to look at it as an indulgence and the whole thing was you no know, it's a sandwich cream biscuit, as we called it. And the real joy is inside, in between. That's the layer of chocolate cream. But on the outside, it looks like a fairly innocent biscuit. But on the inside, it's a little wicked biscuit, right? And that's what we used to create stories of, you know, how people are, you know, seemingly innocent on the outside, but a little wicked once you get get to know them better. So that was something that we particularly enjoyed doing back then.
0: Like BortBorn, I'm sure you've worked on many other iconic campaigns as well. So tell me more about your most memorable campaign and what do you think about that campaign really made it work? Yeah, I mean, a whole
1: host of them, but I'll tell you a couple that come to mind. I mean, the first one is the latest one, which the campaign that we at Densu did for IKEA in Bangalore, the launch of IKEA Bangalore. You may have seen Twitter was buzz with memes of all sorts and the crowds there and, you know, people were having great fun but uh, i think what we did was number one we realized that nobody in bangalore also really knows of this location called nagasandra other than the fact that the metro stops there other than the fact that the metro stops there for those who travel down that line regularly they pro- probably have heard of nagasandra yeah. mm-hmm. now our store was located there and, and we realized that you know we need to tell people where the ready store is in the first place our first phase of the campaign was purely built on the strategy, let's make Nagasandra famous so that people don't struggle saying, hey, where the hell is IKEA in, in Bangalore? And mm-hmm. we we collaborated with Danis Seth, of course, iconic characters that he's created from mm-hmm. Bangalore as well. And we had some great fun with him and we did a few videos with him on him actually, you know, pulling the brand's leg. So we took mm-hmm. a dig at ourselves in a manner of speaking. We made Nagasandra famous with him to begin with. Mm. So people knew IK was coming up and coming up in Nagasandra. That was the first phase. Mm. The second phase, we also realized that Nagasandra mm. isn't really close to most people in Bangalore, of course, mm. apart from that side of town. Very. So, how do we get people to want to get off their couches and make that somewhat longish trip to Nagasandra? And for that, you know, we did some research, like I said, spoke to consumers and we figured mm-hmm. out that, you know, for people who who know about IKEA, there are people, many people don't know about IKEA. What they really liked was the fact that it was super huge and that you could spend a day or even a day or two there. Uh, and so the size of the store became a big part of our communication strategy, you know, 4.6 lakh square feet. Mm-hmm. People felt it, was a, it wasn't a store, it was like a mall. Furniture mall. So that's one thing that we spoke of. The other thing was again, with the size comes the sheer variety of the products. So, you know, we said more than 7,000 products. Then, uh, you know, us Indians, we love food. So we said, hey, I guess got a thousand seater restaurant, food court with both Indian and mm-hmm. Swedish delicacies. So we communicated that as well. Basically, communicated how it could be a fun day out. And when you sort of portray the brand in that light, then Hey, why why don't we go and check out IKEA for a day? And then a day trip begins to make sense. And all that effort and energy begins to make sense. So as you probably have seen, I mean, the crowds that we saw in the first week were crazy. So very, very successful campaign. That was one that fresh out of the oven and memorable right now. The other one I really like is for Tata T Jagore. And this was a particular one we did called The Power of Forty Nine. This was back in 2014 and of course now you know women's empowerment in advertising is par for the course but in 2014 it still wasn't and 2014 was also the year of the general elections and, and the Tea with this whole jagore platform was really about awaking people's social consciousness so back then we were possibly the one of the first brands to open people's eyes to the power of women and one of the problems we set out to solve through the general elections was we realized you know in heartland india women just go and blindly follow their husband's vote or for whoever the husband tells them to vote for which is which is okay also but we wanted to you know tell women use your own due diligence do your own daily due diligence your vote is not as insignificant as you think it is women also felt yeah what will what change can i make um and somebody in our team found this wonderful statistic that women actually form 49% of the electoral franchise. And that's when we came up with this thought of the power of 49. And, you know, there was created this ad where we said, in Hindi, of course, it was you know, this female protagonist, she's warning her politician husband, don't underestimate us, we form 49% and you can't take us lightly. Uh, hmm. So, that is another campaign that i particularly proud
0: of. And I think this is the best part about working in a marketing company as well. You actually get to work on a wide variety of campaigns from various industries. So, I just want to switch to the calculation of return on investment now. So there's this one framework mentioned in the book, Brand Flip, where the author actually talks about the journey of a customer on a ladder. And each rung of the ladder is divided into different segments. So for every campaign, he says that the brand should track if the customer is moving up the ladder or not. Um, So that being said, what are some of the ways that you track return in the campaigns that you run?
1: Yeah, I think that's another thing that, you know, I would recommend everybody do, which is...
0: Before the campaign,
1: while you're conceptualizing, while you're briefing your communication partners or while if you have an in-house team, uh, agree on the metrics beforehand. What am I going to measure this campaign by? Both business and brand metrics. How much do I want my footfalls to increase or how much do I want my sales to increase uh, or how much do I want sales from my website to increase by um, various parameters that are appropriate for your company, brand life stage, stroke category. And then there are brand metrics also, which is, you know, things like softer things like awareness, how many people are aware aware, aware of me or consideration or preference or what we call the funnel in marketing. So once you sort of uh, have clarity on that, then you can go back and measure also on those rather than not have that in the beginning and then try to figure out, hey, is it working or not? Now, there might be various theories, but I believe there is there is nothing that measures effectivity or effectiveness like sales or even traffic. Sometimes communication's job is just traffic. After that is the job of the product to convince. So I think as long as those two metrics are in place and then a couple of brand metrics also, it could be awareness or could be preference or consideration, I think those
0: are the basic building blocks of, you know, any ROI conversation. Got it. Makes sense. So the next question of mine is mostly skewed towards early-stage startups than publicly listed companies. So what I want to ask you is, is it possible for the brand of a company to be differentiated from the personal brand of the founder, or is it mostly tied together? Um, just to give you an example. So if you look at Bharat Pay, it's almost synonymous with Ashneer Grower because they say that he's the person who builds the brand, right? So how do you look at the two brands? The founder's personal brand and the company's brand?
1: I think it's quite difficult to separate the two, particularly for early-stage startups. See, a brand is nothing but, you know, creation of the founder and the the, the founding team so there the founder's personality or the founding team's personality will inevitably be seen and often that's a good thing because you know that helps authenticity mm-hmm. uh, Rahul can't come in and put you know an Ashneed rover kind of personality on his brand because mm-hmm. that's not Rahul and similarly for Ashneer, he can't come and suddenly make Bharat walk talk act like Rahul right mm-hmm. so I think particularly to get that initial, those initial few passionate consumers using the founder's personality is a good thing. Of course, like many things, it it is a double-edged sword. And, you know, when things go a little southwards, then the brand also gets affected. Even if you take a publicly listed company and you take a celeb endorsement, you know, if mm-hmm. they are in the dock for something, then the brand gets affected. So that risk is always there. Reputational risk is always there. But I think it certainly helps uh, for early-stage startups to build out some sort of differentiation. I think we saw it for, you know, brands like Ather, brand guys like uh, Mehta and Swapnil. Their personality was very evident in the early days um, and so many other startups. I mean. mm.
0: I think even the whole truth is a good example. Shashank's personality stands out in almost everything that they do. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah,
1: that's another great example. There are some founders who are very media shy and they might not want to do that. And that's absolutely fine. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure they'll think of far more interesting ways to sort of build their brand. But I mean, horses for courses, there's no one right answer.
0: In the show notes, I have linked out to the campaign videos of IKEA's collaboration with Danis said and Tata T's Power of 49. Follow the business project for more such content. Until next time, cheers.